This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is sponsored by Marantz. A great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details. It's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood. These are real words spoken by real Marantz fans who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world. When you spin vinyl on a Marantz turntable connected to a Marantz hi-fi system, you'll understand why Marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time and why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary Marantz sound. Check out all the latest Marantz gear at Marantz.com. That's M-A-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag WhyMarantz. It started, as I suppose these things always do, with a phone call. I was at home, in some combo of basketball shorts and a dirty t-shirt, enjoying a deserved week off at home after turning in the second season of the VMP Anthology podcast, The Women of Motown. My boss at Vinyl Me Please, Cameron Schaefer, is calling. Man, what does he want? I'm off, I think to myself. Hey man, he says, I know you're off, but we just got approval to do an anthology with Stax Records. They want titles as soon as we can send them, and I figured if we don't ask the guy on staff with a Stax tattoo, we are seriously fucking up. Listener, he was not wrong. My vacation became the kind of assignment that makes working at Vinyl Me Please a dream that I could not even have thought to fantasize about as a teen or even in my late 20s. I've been obsessed with soul music basically my entire life. I grew up in a household with omnivorous parents that would indulge basically any musical infatuation me or my younger sister had. Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood feels like something that I came out of the womb knowing. I spent a not inconsiderable part of my teen years burning CDs of every best-of compilation by every soul musician that the Oshkosh Public Library had to offer. Sorry, Mom and Dad. From Otis to Sam and Dave to Johnny Taylor. But Stack specifically became an obsession for me a few years ago when my wife and I routed a trip to Gulf Shores through Memphis. And when I realized that the Stax Records building on East Macklemore had been turned into a museum, I made sure that our 48 hours in Memphis included a pilgrimage. In the lead up to the trip, I read every Stax book I could get my hands on, and spent an afternoon in Memphis looking through the museum's impressive collection, including virtually every album the label ever made, instruments from the MGs, and Isaac Hayes' car. I found out that the Stax Museum as it stands now is not the original building. In an episode this season, we'll tell you how it was born again. Along with a civil rights museum at the Lorraine Hotel, Stax is the best museum I've ever been to, and Memphis became my favorite city to visit. The way that so much history and so much incredible music came from this historic and underappreciated city made an impression on me. So much of the history of Memphis is accessible and visible, the good and the bad. It's a rare city that doesn't hide its struggles, but also celebrates its victories. Why am I not trying to get every single Stax album I can on vinyl? I asked my wife, leaving Memphis for Alabama. I had Otis albums and a few Sam and Dave compilations, but I resolved to pick up any and every Stax record I could afford. A couple weeks later, I'm in a meeting at Vinyl Me Please, where we're talking about a new subscription we're launching later that year. It's called Classics, and it's going to reissue jazz, blues, and soul albums. 
and our first label partners are Impulse, Verve, and Stax Records. We need someone to take a deep dive in the Stax catalog, Cameron said in the meeting. I practically jumped through the Google Hangout. I became the Stax point person at Vinyl Me Please, writing the liner notes for six albums in the Stax catalog. Ollie and the Nightingale's self-titled debut, Carla Thomas's Comfort Me, Little Milton's Waiting for Little Milton, William Bell's The Soul of a Bell, Daryl Banks's Here to Stay, and Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, all of which are still available in the VMP store, it's worth noting. At some point in there, I decided to celebrate my 32nd and 33rd birthdays by getting matching wrist tattoos each year. One of the finger snap logo on one wrist, and on the other, the lightning bolt volt logo. I know you didn't press play on this podcast to hear some goon from Madison, Wisconsin tell you all about his tattoos and his vacations, but the point is this. My name is Andrew Winnestorfer. I'm the editorial director of Vinyl Me Please, and I'm a Stax obsessive, and I'm the host of this season of the VMP Anthology podcast, The Story of Stax Records. I, along with the Stax Records staff and my coworkers at VMP, have curated an eight-album box set that tells the Stax story over its first two golden periods roughly the years from 1958 to 1975, when the label closed its doors the first time. There have been revivals over the years, but the label's first 17 years has made it the label of soul music obsessives, boasting an impressive catalog that encompasses releases from a roll call of the greats of soul, blues, and gospel music. These eight albums themselves mix some of the most important albums in the label's catalog and deep cuts from the soul music masters. It's a box set picked by Stack superfans for the superfan, and for people hoping to dive deeper into the label's catalog. And I can't express how grateful I am you are all here listening to this podcast. This season of Anthology had the most travel of any season yet. I went to Atlanta to a Stax artist studio and got some marriage advice from him, in addition to talking about a concept album he made in 1972. I went to Nashville and Memphis to talk to the musicians who play on and wrote these albums. I talked to the writer of the best resource on Stax and the director of the Stax Museum. I recorded in studios used by Elvis Presley, The White Stripes, Wilco, Tommy Wright III, and a conference room of an alt-country label. This season is also our longest yet, six episodes telling the Stax story, four episodes about two albums each, and two bookends. We'll also have multiple mini-episodes for you to listen to as well if you scan your QR code that comes with your box once you receive it. But before we get there, we have to go back to 1958, where a bank teller had the audacious plan to start a record label. I'm by far, and yet I'm cold. Like many of the most important American companies, Stax Records started in a garage. A bank teller and fiddle player named Jim Stewart saw the success that a Memphis local named Sam Phillips had with a singer named Elvis Presley and decided to start a label. He called his record label Satellite Records and in 1958 started recording bands in his garage. When Jim needed more money and a new mixer, he went to his older sister, Estelle Axton, who mortgaged her house for the huge in 1958 sum of $2,500. Jim moved to a bigger spot in New Brunswick, Tennessee, at which point he met the man who would provide the label's first real hit, Rufus Thomas. Rufus was a man around town in Memphis, hustling any way he knew how in the music business, working as an MC at clubs on Beale Street and as a radio DJ and as a performer. Around this time, Stewart also met Memphis producer Chips Moman, who'd eventually produce many number one hits in Memphis at American Studios. 
Moman told Stewart if he wanted artists and a better recording facility, he needed to move to Memphis. Stewart acquiesced and moved the satellite records operation to 926 East Macklemore Avenue, the site of a former theater. He hired some local kids and friends of Estelle's son, Packy, including a teenager who fancied himself a guitarist named Steve Cropper, to help tear out the theater seats and turn the building into a recording studio. Reasoning that the label would be helped by having a steady income, Estelle carved out the former concessions area into a record store, the only one on East Macklemore, which would become a magnet for neighborhood kids like William Bell, David Porter, and Booker T. Jones before they would even have called themselves musicians. In 1960, Satellite had its first big hit, Cause I Love You, the debut single from Rufus Thomas and his daughter Carla, who'd go on to become the Queen of Memphis Soul. When the song became a regional hit, it came across the desk of Jerry Wexler, a New York record producer and co-owner of Atlantic Records. He signed Satellite up for a distribution deal, putting Cause I Love You in more record stores than Stewart had been able to manage. Next followed the Carla Thomas Penn's solo single, Gee Whiz, and an instrumental single by a group called The Marquees. When G Wiz and Last Night by The Marquees became big hits outside of the Mid-South, a label in California let Jim and Estelle know that they had the rights to the name Satellite Records. Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton decided to mash up their last names, and Stax Records was born. The history I'm telling you comes from the veritable Stax Bible, Robert Gordon's Respect Yourself, Stax Records, and The Soul Explosion. He's also the author of the liner notes for our box set, and in late October, I went to Memphis to interview him about Stax's history. He'll be an intermittent guide on our voyage through the history of Stax and this box set. Here, we talk about the beginnings of Stax, why Stax succeeded where other labels failed, and how important Jim and Estelle were once the label started going. So what inspired you to do the, the Stax book? Like, how did that, you know, because you'd done, like, the Muddy Waters book mm-hmm. before then and um, did a lot of stuff with about Muddy. Right. I'd done, well, I mean, even in my first book, it came from Memphis. There's a chapter about Packy Axton and the formation of the Marquis, in which a lot of the information I learned is wrong, you know. Uh, not a lot, but, you know, there was things I, that, as I got into more work uh, and more research, I learned my, I learned more. Mm-hmm. So Stax was always kind of waiting. I, there wasn't, there was a book on Stax, but there wasn't a readable book on Stax. And, right. then, and then there was like chapters of books that were about Stax, but they were kind of specific about events or people or places and not telling the whole story. So the thing I always liked about Stax was you had blacks and whites working together inside a fortress. Everybody I interviewed about Stax, who was at Stax, used the word oasis. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I really thought that was true. Inside those walls of that theater, there was a freedom that didn't exist outside those walls. And I just thought that was a really interesting thing. How You know two worlds, uh, inside and outside, black and white. Um, and, and not by any, I want to convey for sure that not by any means were black and white equal inside stacks, Mm -hmm. you know, but you had a sense of respect that you didn't have outside of stacks and you had open communications so that at some point at stacks, I think it was around 1966, 
um, Isaac Hayes could be getting upset that the two white owners were actually it was earlier 64 I think two white owners were uh, making the most money off of all this black talent and it suddenly started to feel like a sharecropping kind of situation and Isaac could bring that up and other writers and, and musicians could join him and Jim and Estelle the white owners could hear them and respect them and and respond by bringing Al Bell on in 65 as an executive with the potential for equity ownership mm-hmm. so I think Stax is a, is a, is uh, a symbol of respect in Memphis sure and yeah, I think you said, you mentioned there hadn't really been a book until yours that was like the narrative of Stax. It was very much previously, it was like, here are all of the records. It was an annotated discography. Yeah. yeah. Rob Bowman, Soulsville is the book. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's an incredible resource for the records. But right. if you want the like blood, sweat and tears and the, the Roman tragedy and the, you know, that that's your book. Yes. And was that, that was what you... Like you identified that when you were going to write it. That, oh, absolutely. That's, that was, yeah. was there was that was what was needed, and that was what I do. Mm-hmm. So, so I wasn't w- worried about you know repeating Rob's book or Peter Gralnick's Sweet Soul Music. You mm-hmm. know, there was a I, I couldn't have done my book as well without Sweet Soul Music and without Soulsville USA. But there was an absence that I intended to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, in ye, the liner notes specifically that you wrote for our box set that mm-hmm. we have coming, um, you kind of talked about uh, that there was sort of a boom in Memphis with record labels that after Sun Records hit that it was sort of like everybody who thought they could record was like, <laughs> you know, to these guys, Sam was a, he was basically a peckerwood like they were, you know, <laughs> and they felt like, hell man, if he can do it, I can do it. Uh-huh. And 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 I play an instrument, you know. Uh, people would 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 think Sam didn't play. I mean, he he was competent on the sousaphone, but hardly a uh, you know budding rock and roller. Uh-huh. Um, and so and Sam was basically a trained mortician. So they they thought, well, you know, if a guy with no real training here can do it, maybe I can do it. And so labels started popping up: Goldwax, um, High, just you know. Lots and lots of labels, stacks. You know, mm-hmm. people looked at people looked and said, "It's easy," <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was not. Right, they all found out it was not. Yeah, they all found out it was not. They all found out what a dirty business it was because, as the Sun story makes evident, you know, Sam got taken. He 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 paid expensive tuition uh, in order to make his way. And he almost went broke. You know, if it hadn't been for Elvis, he'd, he'd have gone broke. He couldn't afford to pay the royalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in some ways, Stax had a pretty similar story there in the first part where yeah. at the, the Atlantic deal falls apart, um, which we can get to in a little bit. But, um, so yeah, I guess, uh, why do you think that Stax caught fire in a way that like maybe gold wax and high, you know, high had Al green, yeah, but it not wasn't till the 70s, right. Yeah. Not till the seventies and gold wax kind of, you know, had singles that would pop off, but never became like the behemoth that stacks did. Right. What like in doing, you know, your, your research on it, why stacks, 
what what did what happened there that they are the one that you know we're doing we're not doing a podcast about gold wax right now <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah um good question i guess i would have to say that the answer is booker t and the mgs i mean and they didn't they weren't there right at the start you know there was a number of records and hits prior to the creation of formation of booker t and the mgs but um but the reason that stacks got a, a foothold was one, they had good distribution through Atlantic. Jim Stewart lucked into that and even, and, and almost, you know, made, made a mistake early on. J Jim Stewart made a deal with Atlantic to distribute Rufus and Carla Thomas. And then when Carla recorded her next single, Gee Whiz, Jim put it out himself. And he was upset when Atlantic came along saying, oh, no, no, sir, we have a distribution deal. Jim said, our deal is on this duet. Mm -hmm. And Atlantic said, our, de our deal is on all your product. And for, I'm not sure, I mean, you know, when you're, when the people who are distributing your first hit record, you don't want to get them upset, mm -hmm. right? So I think that Jim realized he was kind of in a bind and had to go with the deal. Because I think if they hadn't gone with the deal, we wouldn't be doing a podcast today about stacks. Mm -hmm. And then when the MGs form, there's a house sound mm -hmm. and there's a competent, creative, innovative, organic group of musicians who are able to work off their head charts, ideas in their heads, not written down, uh, with any artist who walked in. And they were lucky enough to be both a recording act themselves so that their egos could be fed mm -hmm. and a backing band where they could throw themselves into the artists they were backing without worrying about themselves because they had their own act mm -hmm. where they could express themselves. I think, I think those are the things that established Stacks as a powerhouse early on. It gave it the foundation. Right. Yeah. Whereas opposed to like something like Motown, where it was like the singular vision of like one guy being like, this is the, this is the thing we're doing with stacks. It feels like it's, it's this band. It does. House that, yeah. Although you can't ignore the importance or authority of Jim Stewart. I remember one of the, when I was interviewing Duck Dunn, <laughs> God rest his soul. He said, man, we'd be, you know, the MGs would be in the studio. We'd be playing this great stuff. And Jim's sitting at the control board with his head and his chin looking mopey. And Duck <laughs> says, I'm thinking to myself, you know, don't you hear what we're doing here? But he knew that when Jim was in the control room up and dancing, that they had a take. So, 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 you know, Jim was holding them to a standard that they weren't aware of. And I think that Jim's role, you know, is important in establishing um, the MGs and Stacks. And Estelle, too, because Estelle is the, I mean, for one, she's the face of the company. When you walked in the door, she's the one who would greet you. Mm -hmm. And if, for example, it had been her husband who was greeting people when they came in the door, most black people wouldn't have stayed. But with Estelle, she embraced everybody. So, and then she also had an ear. She was a Dewey Phillips fan. She listened to the radio. She liked R&B. She liked weird stuff. She had a real ear for, for a hit. Mm -hmm. and, and, 
and had some authority, not as much, even though she was a co-owner, equal owner with Jim, she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And in this time period, you know, she did not have the same authority. But uh, like that's how she got last night released. She, she's, she cried and that didn't work. She yelled and that didn't work. And when she cussed, Jim had never heard her cuss. And he said, <laughs> okay, find the tape. I'll take it to the pressing plant. Yeah, and, and you mentioned a little bit in the liar notes and a lot in the book that she basically was like their their A&R and research department in a way that she yep. had this record store that if she put the, you know, the, the acetates that they were cutting, if she's playing it out loud and the kids in the store are dancing, then it's like, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's totally it. She had a turntable where you could go in and listen before you bought. Booker T. Jones talks about he couldn't afford to buy the records, but he liked to go in there and listen to John Coltrane and Ray Charles. And, um, and Estelle hung a speaker outside. And so she would... She could take an acetate, play it in the store, look at the crowd's response inside, look out the window, see if the kids are, you know, dancing outside, and, and, and then, no, oh, this, this one's a good one. As Robert said, the thing that set Stax apart from all other record labels was their house band, which was originally comprised of guitarist Steve Cropper, drummer Al Jackson Jr., bassist Louis Steinberg, and a kid who grew up around the corner from Stax, Booker T. Jones. Steinberg and Jones had met playing in Willie Mitchell's band and had been lobbying Jim Stewart to hire Jackson as the drummer at Stax for a while before finally letting him sit in for a session. Jackson would remain as the house drummer at Stax for the remainder of his life. Add in studio employee Cropper on guitar and you have the band that would be the very engine of Stax Records. They'd always claim that their name came from being a Memphis group and one of the few integrated ones, it should be noted as Steinberg and Cropper were white, while Jones and Jackson were black. But now they can admit that they were named after the MG car and were just worried about being sued. Jones talks all about his early days in Memphis and what it was like to first walk into Stax in his new memoir, Time is Tight. I sat with Mr. Jones in Memphis in November to talk about the book and his Stax days. And here, he remembers Estelle Axon and Jim Stewart turning the theater on Macklemore into a cocoon where musicians could make music uninterrupted a rarity in those days. So one of the other things you talk about in the book, um, you say that Stax was really like a sanctuary for you, mm -hmm. um, but that it it didn't really mean, it meant little to Memphis mm -hmm. at the time. Can you kind of expand on what you meant by that? Well, in that it was uh, very similar to a cocoon, you know. Uh, we're here today in Memphis and we could close this off and nobody know what we're talking about, what we're doing, what we're saying. And it stayed like that for weeks and months until records started coming out and people started noticing, oh, this is coming from right underneath my nose here. So the, I think the powers that be in Memphis were, were unaware that we were uh, an interracial band in, in 1962 or 1960. And so they didn't have much to say about it because they didn't know about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you say, like, you talked last night about... Uh, you like didn't know what was going on there. Like the first time you went into the record store that like you just walked in and saw a record store. And yes. That's I, was, how... I was so surprised to see a record store there uh, at that location in that neighborhood because it had been a theater <clears throat> and then, you know, in the theater, it was just popcorn and peanuts and, mm -hmm. and the movies. Yeah. But, but this was something different. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever at that point had seen uh, record stores and theater fronts. Mm -hmm. So it was just drew me in because I, I love music so much and I wanted to hear records and, and that, that was a great, great location for me. 
Mm-hmm. And Steve Cropper is working behind the desk and <laughs> playing you records. All yeah, that was that was that was uh, advantageous for me. He was a nice guy, and he uh, he he was just generous. But you know that in those days, that was one of the ways they got people to buy records was to let them listen mm-hmm. first. And, and but he let let me listen a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think William Bell said that like he that was how he found out like he would go and like just be dancing in front of the studio because like she would have Miss Axton would have the speakers playing out mm-hmm. and William like the first time he found out about Stacks was just like walking down the street and there's music coming out of the speaker and then he's just like hanging out dancing having a good time and then realized like they're making the records down in in this place too yeah yeah she was smart she was having fun uh, with, with with the kids on the street and she loved to to watch them listen and watch them enjoy Mm -hmm. in some ways it's like you guys had like this focus group just like waiting and hanging out you know if they're not dancing to your record you know you got to go back and work on it right wow yeah that's true yeah she'd use a lot of her records as examples for us the legend of how the group started as their own thing rather than just as a backing band starts at the very session they were brought together by the legend has changed over the years Some people say the rockabilly singer they were supposed to back up was too drunk. Some say he never showed. Others say he recorded but was terrible. But the group spent the afternoon improvising a bluesy, hazy romp that would become the number three song in the country, Green Onions. I'll let Steve Cropper tell that story, as he did to me in Nashville in October. Do you ever think that this job you took as a teenager would be something that you'd be talking about, you know, when you guys no, were in Stacks. No, no. <laughs> we were just, at the time, yes, we wanted to, to make it, but we didn't know it'd last all that long, no. I had no idea. I don't think anybody does. Mm-hmm. That we'd still be out there doing it. Because there are a lot of artists that didn't get to do it, or they passed away too quick to do it, or whatever, so. You know, mm-hmm. It is what it is. <laughs> and so, the, the MGs were sort of formed uh, just by you guys like hanging out at the studio. Well, uh, accidentally became Booker T and the MGs, but we had to have a name for a hit record that we did, mm-hmm. uh, for a hit song that we were going to release. And uh, you know, basically, you look at Booker T and the MGs. We were a put together band of musicians to be a house band, and that was about it. And it's it was all by trial and error. Had we not done good the first time, then we probably wouldn't got the chance again. But we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we laughed about um, what Jim Stewart was wanting to do because we were just jamming, waiting on an artist on the weekend and uh, to show up. And and they said he did show up, but he didn't show up back in the studio. I was told that he showed up in the record shop, and he'd been up all night. I mean, this was a Sunday, so he'd been up singing all night and doing whatever. So it's uh, you know, I, it's very understandable. And I don't think the band. Booker T and the MGs or any of the staff band were ever asked to do demos. A session was a session, but Jim Stewart said, would you guys come in on the weekend and do a little quick thing with this artist that I want to try? I said, I'm not going to go in the name of the artist. But uh, it was a great idea, I guess. And so we were just jamming around with some blues, just keeping our chops up and the sound and all that. And what we didn't know is Jim Stewart was ready to record, so he just reached, he hears it, and we got into it a little bit. It's, it's one of those things. 
I think it came out on the flip side of uh, Green Onions. It was a little song called Behave Yourself, mm-hmm. which got titled that later, not at the time. It was just blues in the key of F or something. <laughs> <laughs> he reaches over and pushes a button, and we're, we get through, and we're just laughing and going, man, that was fun, you know. And Jim Sturt says, hey, guys, come in and listen to that. That's pretty good. I'm going, what? You recorded that? Yeah, I recorded it. So I remember him saying, if, if, the big word if, we decided to put something like this out, like a blues thing. You guys have anything we put on the other side? Because in those days, there was an A-side and a B-side. That's the way records came out in those days, 45 A-side and B-side. And we just looked dumbfounded. We said, no, no, no. So I, I do kind of remember, I'll, I'll read the book when I get home, because I just opened it up this morning. We just got back from Florida. So uh, Booker has a new book out called yeah, Time Yeah, I have it in my bag. Oh, you have it? it? Yeah, yeah, I've got to read it. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I hopefully he brought that up and uh, I said do you remember that riff you played me two or three weeks prior he said I don't know he needed he said come on down to the organ and I'll play a couple and you see if I said he when he played Green Onions I said that's it so we cut the song and three three cuts later we had it and I knew I thought it was a good dance song mm-hmm. much better than the blues thing <laughs> so I had of all people to get historic here Scotty Moore at the time was Elvis's guitar player, wanted to be an engineer, and he was running the lathe at Sun Records. And so we used to go over there and, and get dubs made or whatever. And so I go over there, I call him, and I said, uh, we cut a little something yesterday, and I think it's, you know, catchy or whatever. Would you cut me a dub on it? So he did, and he's listening to it, and he said, man, that is catchy. I said, yeah. So I take it to my friend who is a, a morning drive disc jockey at WLOK, and I said, I want you to hear something we cut. I got, I had Scotty cut me a dub on it yesterday, and I said, we recorded this thing uh, on Sunday, and I just want you, your opinion on it. Do you think it's catchy? Because he's a disc jockey, and he deals with teenagers and people dance and all that kind of stuff. And um, he plays the intro and maybe about two bars of the f- first verse and stops it. And I said, what, you don't like it? He said, no, I want to hear it again. I want to, I want to hear that intro. So he plays the intro again. What I didn't know, he put it out on the air when he did that. Ah! So while it's playing, the phones are lighting up. And he goes, I don't know, but we'll find out pretty soon. Well, I don't know. You know, people were calling and said, what are you playing, man? That's pretty catchy. I don't know, but we're going to find out. So I get back to the, to the record shop where I you know, start my daily gig at 9 o'clock. And... Uh, so Mrs. Action said, this is probably all your fault, right? And I said, you're not talking about this, are you? She said, the phone is ringing off the wall. I want to know what they heard on the radio this morning. I said, ah, okay, I didn't, I didn't tell him to play it. I said, he's done it on his own. And she, she called Jim Stewart and said, you better get over here. we got a problem. We're going to have to work out. So. <laughs> and then the, and then and the rest is history. Yeah. So we took it to the vet that afternoon. He said, call the guys in. We did that. Name the group. And uh, we did Booker T the MGs, and uh, I don't know how I, I, I can tell you now on the radio since you're going to play this. MG did stand for the MG car <laughs> because we had the Triumphs, there was the, mm-hmm. the Vontees, there was all these different bands, and the Cadillacs and the Eldorados and all that. So uh, there was a record out called Burnt Biscuits that Chips had recorded with his band and uh, by the triumph, so we thought, Booker T and EMGs, that's good. Well, then we get a letter, Atlantic did, from the lawyers from British Motors, said we don't want to be involved with any musical bands anymore, no, no rock and roll, no anything. Oh, uh, you got to change it. So we didn't want to change the name. 
So they said, okay, we'll just make it Memphis Group. Mm -hmm. And I, being a ding-dong that I am, I said, well, I would make it, it's plural, I'd make it Memphis Groups. <laughs> that didn't work, but we stayed with that for a long time. <laughs> so we'd do a lot of interviews after we made it, and they'd say, okay, tell us the truth. What does MG stand for? So I uh, don't Memphis Group. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to get sued, but yeah. 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 Didn't want to get sued, so. Mm -hmm. Too late to sue us now. I think it's been over 21 years. So yeah, and is, yeah, feel is free to MG, talk about it. Yeah, is MG still a car even at this point? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The MGs would be the house band at Stax for almost 10 years, playing on 95% of the albums the label released between 1962 and 1968. In fact, they're the band on five of the eight of the albums featured in this box set the first three, and the fifth and the sixth. The MGs are the most singularly important soul band of all time. They were stars in their own right and played on every Otis Redding album, every Sam and Dave album, and too many more to name here. Their run is unprecedented. Motown had the Funk Brothers, but they weren't always expected to write all of their own material like the MGs often did. The first LP released on Stax bears their name, and you should keep this fact in mind throughout this experience. If Jim and Estelle don't find the theater at East Macklemore, around the corner from Booker T, you're not listening to this podcast, we're not releasing this box set, and I have tattoo-free wrists. In this season of VMP Anthology, we're going to be telling a slice of the stack story, mostly framed via the eight albums featured in our box set. Your box should be headed to your house now, and when it arrives, you'll be presented with a choice. You can open all of your records at once, shotgun the stack story, and move along. Or you can slow down and appreciate each album on its own. Follow along with live unboxings and five subsequent episodes of this podcast. Like a foam rock from Nickelodeon once said, the choice is yours and yours alone. Whatever you choose, scan the QR code that comes on your welcome letter every Friday afternoon for updates of original content, this podcast, bonus interviews, and much more we've created to make your immersion in stacks more fulfilling. In my opinion, Stax is the most important American record label of all time. And you maybe won't agree at the end of this experience, but at the very least, you'll have a lot of material to appreciate the label more than you did when you purchased this 8LP box set. In our next episode, we tell the stories behind the first two albums in your box set, featuring interviews with artists that made and wrote them. Before we sign off with episode one, I leave you with this, Robert Gordon on the legacy of Stax. Soul music. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, the ultimate legacy of Stax is um, is the ability to go into the studio and record emotion to tape in an organic way. You know, prior to Stax, in New York certainly, and in L.A. certainly, everything was so unionized that... There had to be, you know, an arranger, uh, someone who wrote the charts, um, someone who handed out the charts, you know, musicians had to play the charts. It was all, there, there wasn't the give and take of the individual. And, 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 and it was successful a lot of times, you know, but at the same time, the recording artists weren't allowed to breathe and there wasn't that organic sense. It wasn't built from the ground up. It was built from the top down here, do this. Mm -hmm. And at stacks, it became, Hey, what can we do? Not here, do this. 
And I, I kind of think that spirit and the um, the value of the racial cooperation are the are the two important legacies and the fun on the dance floor. <laughs> This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interviews were recorded at OAM Network in Memphis with engineering by Gil Worth, at American Recording Studio in Memphis with engineering by Jason Gillespie, and at the 30 Tigers office in Nashville with engineering by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency podcast. Voiceover is engineered by Jonah Graber. Special thanks to Steve and Angel Cropper, Booker T, Nan, and Olivia Jones, the staff at 30 Tigers for letting me record in your conference room, Robert Gordon, Brad Dunn at American Recording Studio, and Michelle Smith at Stax. And remember, listen to more David Porter. <laughs>